All right, uh, we're going to get started, and I'm going to just open us up in a word of prayer real quick. Father, we thank you uh, for this time. Uh, we pray that you would uh, help us to uh, apply our minds uh, now to your word um, for all the um, all that it has for us, uh, whatever is here that would edify us. I pray that you would help it uh, to sear into our hearts and to apply it uh, to our lives. Uh, whatever is here that uh, is confusing, uh, would you help us to discipline ourselves and our minds to uh, try to learn what profit there is from it. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Okay. Uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8. And we'll be reading all of chapter 8. So about 27 verses. And as you're turning there, I'll just give you the... Uh, the title for this study uh, is The Time of the End, Daniel chapter 8, uh, The Time of the End. And I'm going to just begin reading, uh, yeah, right from the beginning of chapter 8. A fair warning, uh, by the way, if you usually follow with me in the ESV, I'm reading out of, what is this called? Uh, the New English Bible or the New American Translation. Um, so if you're familiar with that, it's kind of like the NLT a little bit. So. Not for any particular reason. We'll get there when we get there. Um, okay. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, while I was in Susa, the capital city of the province of Elam, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, similar to my former vision. In this vision, I was watching beside the stream of the Ulai. I raised my eyes, and there I saw a ram with two horns standing between me and the stream. The two horns were long, the one longer than the other, growing up behind. And I watched the ram budding west and north and south, and no beasts could stand before it. No one could rescue from its power. I did what it, it did what it liked, making a display of its strength. And while I pondered this, suddenly a he-goat came from the west, skimming over the whole earth without touching the ground. It had a prominent horn between its eyes, and it approached the two-horned ram, which I had seen standing between me and the stream, and it rushed at it with an impetuous force. I saw an advance on the ram, working itself into a fury against it, and then strike the ram and break its two horns. The ram had no strength to resist. The he-goat flung it to the ground and trampled on it, and there was no one to save the ram. Then the he-goat made a great display of its strength. Powerful as it was, it was a great horn. Its great horn snapped, and in its place there sprang outwards of the four quarters of heaven four prominent horns. One of them was there, uh, was there issued a small horn, which made a prodigious sow of strength, south and east, and towards the fairest of all lands. It aspired to be as great as the host of heaven, and it cast down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trod them underfoot. It aspired to be as great as the prince of the host, suppressed his regular offering, and even threw down his sanctuary. The heavenly hosts were delivered up, and it raised itself impetuously against the regular offering and, and threw true religion to the ground. In all that it did, it succeeded. I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one answering him, whoever he was. And the one said, for how long will the period of this vision last? How long will the regular offering be suppressed? How long will impiety cause desolation? And both the holy place and the fairest of all lands be given over to be trotted down. The answer came, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the holy place shall emerge victorious. All the while I, Daniel, was seeing this vision, I was trying to understand it. 
Suddenly I saw standing before me one with the semblance of a man, and at the same time I heard a human voice calling to him across the bend of the Ulai. Gabriel explained the vision to the man. He came up to where I was standing, and I was seized with terror, and his approach and threw and he approached, and he threw me threw himself I threw myself upon my face. But he said to me, Understand, O man, the vision points to the time of the end. And when he spoke to me, I fell to the ground as in a trance. But he grasped me, and he made me to stand up where I was. And he said, I shall make known to you what is to happen, and the end of the wrath. For there is an end appointed to the time. The two-horned ram, which you saw, signifies the kings of Media and Persia. The he-goat is the kingdom of the Greeks, and the great horn on his forehead is the first king. As for the horn, which was snapped off and replaced by the four horns, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with power comparable to his. In the last days of those kingdoms, when their sin is at its height, a king shall appear, harsh and grim, a master strategizer. His power shall be great. He shall wreak havoc untold. He shall succeed in whatever he does. He shall work havoc among great nations and upon the holy people. His mind shall be ever active, and he shall succeed in his crafty designs. He shall conjure up great plans, and when they least expect it, wreck havoc on many. He shall challenge even the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hands. This revelation which has been given of the evenings and the mornings is true, but you must keep this vision secret, for it points to days yet to come. As for me, Daniel, my strength failed me, and I lay sick for a while, and then I arose and attended to the king's business, but I was perplexed by the revelation, and no one could explain it. All right, so Daniel chapter 8, uh, maybe the only part of that uh, uh, ch chapter that you can sympathize with is the part where Daniel says in verse 15 he was trying to understand the vision. Um, but uh, fear not, uh, in, in time, I, I think that this one, this is maybe because of the other two uh, texts that, it, that preclude this one, um, this will be, I think, fairly straightforward to understand, at least at the, at the outset. So uh, Daniel chapter 8, first thing to keep in mind uh, as we've been kind of moving through this prophetic section is the author has been consistent this whole time. This is Daniel, right? At the beginning of the chapter, he says, I, Daniel, saw a vision. So he's the one recording it. It's his vision. And Daniel is recording this vision uh, to his audience. His audience is Jewish people under Babylonian captivity at this time and obviously into the future, that's Jewish people just in exile in general. So the author is the same as it's been, the audience is the same as it's been. And then uh, we're told uh, a point of timing, where in the chronology of history does this take place? And that's told to us in the beginning of chapter eight. Uh, it's in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, in chapter five of Daniel, we saw uh, the finger, the handwriting on the wall about when Belshazzar's partying, then Daniel comes in, he tells him, hey, your time's up, you've been weighed and found wanting. Well, uh, at that point in time, it seemed maybe sudden to us that Belshazzar's time is up because we've just been introduced to him. But at this point in time, it's Belshazzar's third reign. It's now the second time during the reign of Belshazzar that Daniel has had a vision about the end of Belshazzar's kingdom. Uh, so it, I think it can color in a little bit for us. Why is it that Daniel was so sure of his interpretation of the handwriting on the wall, right? The judgment on Belshazzar had been prophesied for some time. It had, it had been coming for a while. And so, uh, and this is just one example of that. So this is in the third year of Belshazzar. Obviously, this means Babylon is still the ruling kingdom over the Jewish people. And it's only two years after the previous vision. So timing-wise, this is happening 
uh, roughly around the time of the Babylonian Empire. Okay? Now, for timing, I'm not going to try to draw dates or anything like that. It's not necessarily a history class. But uh, in terms of chronology, I think it is helpful for us to put this vision in structure with the vision in chapter 2 and the vision in chapter 7. And so the chronology that might be worth drawing out is the chronology of the various kingdoms, right? So the first kingdom that we talked about is Babylon. Apologize for my handwriting. So you have Babylon as the first kingdom. Now in, you might want to, you can check me on this, by the way, and I would encourage you to do so. So the first kingdom that is described in chapter two in the statue is the golden head. And at that point in time, we were speculating what is the golden head, right? But Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the golden head. And in chapter seven, it becomes clear that that golden head is the same as the first beast that comes out of the ground. And so these are the two of the same. They're both Babylon, okay? And in this other vision here, uh, we have uh, a similar kind of vision, but we skip the Babylonian kingdom. You see that? And the reason we can be confident that we skip the Babylonian kingdom in this vision is because when the angel comes to give the interpretation, he skips straight over Babylon and goes to the Medes and the Persians, which is the ram. And remember in the first vision, both of the statue and in chapter seven, the second kingdom we talked about is the Medes and the Persians. So you have the Medes and the Persians as a second kingdom. Uh, in the statue, they are silver. It's the silver chest and arms. In uh, the vision in chapter seven, you can look if you want to remember, this is the bear, which has got three uh, ribs in its mouth and it's kind of lopsided, right? And in this vision, you get kind of the same thing. You have a ram with two horns, but one of the horns is bigger than the other horn, okay? And this is a historical or a pictorial display of, well, the Persians are the stronger of the two empires. So you have the Medes and the Persians, but they don't really share power evenly. It's kind of a hybrid kingdom, and the Medes are secondary to the Persians, okay? But in both cases, in chapter 7 and here in chapter 8, that second kingdom, that second beast, is called the Medes and the Persians. And here, the first beast that Daniel sees is this ram, which is associated with the Medes and the Persians. So timing-wise in this vision, we don't start with Babylon as the first kingdom. We start here, okay? And that's helpful because uh, he goes on to tell us in 23, or sorry, in 18 to 22, he gives us the interpretation and he tells us straight out, hey, by the way, you were confused about the ram, what's going on there? It's the Medes and the Persians, okay? So he kind of gives us that help, which is very helpful. And then uh, you have a kingdom that comes after that kingdom. So remember in the statue, there's four total kingdoms, right? There's the golden head, there's the silver arms and chest. This is all in chapter two. And then after that, there's the bronze legs, right? The, the lower half of the statue. Um, so the bronze legs is the, let's say the third succession of the kingdom that is prophesied in chapter two through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In chapter seven, uh, we saw a beast, which is uh, like a leopard, but it has eagle's wings, okay? The, and the, we, we talked at that time about how this leopard is whatever kingdom is succeeding the Medo-Persian empire. And here, uh, well, we're told about a third kingdom or a second beast in this vision. And this beast is, it's described as a ram or a he-goat uh, in this case. And the he-goat uh, also has a horn, but it's not a two-horned animal. You can try to picture this in your head. It's a, it's a goat with one horn, kind of like coming out straight from its head, okay? I'm not going to say whether it's a goat or not, but the point is he sees something like a goat, um, but this goat is, it, well, it's got a horn that's different than the Medo-Persian one. And then in the interpretation in verses 18 through 22, he tells us, well, this is Greece, right? 
And you can look, uh, for example, if you look at uh, verse 18 to 22 um, with me, um, he, he's giving the interpretation, uh, and this is, uh, I believe, at the end of verse 19, or sorry, beginning of verse 20. The two-horned ram which you saw signifies the kings of Media and Persia, and the he-goat is the kingdom of the Greeks, okay? And then he goes on again, and he says, and the great horn on his forehead is the first king, okay? Who's the first king of the Greek empire? Any history buffs? All right, we talked about this last week as well. This is Alexander the Great. He's the one who's responsible for conquering the world, Hellenizing people. He spreads the Greek language everywhere. This is Alexander the Great. We talked about this, by the way, in chapter 7 as well. So this is a prophecy about, well, the three empires, and now you have the, the goat, or sorry, the ram, and then the goat. And this goat, uh, we saw in the vision, he goes, squares off against the ram, shatters the ram's horns, and then essentially tramples the ram underfoot. Okay? He does whatever he wants to. Okay? So while the ram had strong dominion during its time, when the ram's time is up, well, now Greece gets its dominion. But in this kingdom, the Greece kingdom, uh, well, they don't have an infinite kingdom either. The problem with Greece in the vision is not that it's not strong or a vicious empire, right? It has, it's, it's completely unstoppable. But the problem is, uh, even though it aspired to be as great as the prince of the host, this is now in verse 11, uh, and suppressed the regular offering and threw down the saints and, and squared off against them, um, I apologize. Uh, I've skipped ahead now. Um, you have the, the Greek kingdom, and then it's, it's split off into four horns. So this is beginning of verse 8. Powerful as it was, its great horns, so that's the central horn, snapped, and in its place there sprang out towards the four quarters of heaven four prominent horns. So Greece, let's say, uh, it divides down into four separate kingdoms. And this is the totality, let's say, of vision, and then of these four kingdoms, right, if we were to draw four of these out, one of them is described in further detail as the little horn, okay? Now, as an interpretive note, something I want you to look at, and just because I'm about to explain the little horn in chapter 7, the little horn in chapter 7, or sorry, in chapter 8, the little horn in chapter 8 is different than the little horn in chapter 7, okay? Now you might be saying, well, hold on, I just got all the imagery. It's the little horn, it's called the little horn twice, okay? In chapter seven, the little horn that's described comes from not the Greek kingdom, it comes from the kingdom after the Greek kingdom, which is Rome. But in this vision, it doesn't have all four kingdoms in the vision, it has the second and the third kingdom, and it tells us, let's say, zooming in on those two, well, out of the second kingdom, there's gonna be a split in the kingdom, or sorry, out of the second image, the third kingdom, there's gonna be a split, and in this split, one of the four of the split is going to be called a little horn, okay? This is important because um, the little horn in chapter 7 is much debated. The little horn in chapter 8 is, is not so much debated because we can look at history and we can see accurately who the little horn is predicted for us here, okay? So I'm just going to read the description here in Daniel. And then the reason I have uh, a different Bible translation in front of me because I'm also going to be reading out of Maccabees so that we can see how is this fulfilled? How, how did this come to pass? Okay. So uh, I'm just going to read that section again. Uh, this is in verse 10. It, this is the, the little horn, it aspired to be as great as the host of heaven. And it cast down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars, and it trod them underfoot. So who are the host? Who are the stars? These are the Jewish people. Don't believe me? Genesis, when Joseph has his dream, uh, Joseph and his wife, or sorry, Jacob and his wife are the sun and the moon, 
and the, and the tribes of Israel are described as stars, the, the 12 tribes, okay? And it's a common way to refer to the Jewish people. So the stars of heaven are trod underfoot by this little horn, and it aspired to be as great as the prince of the host, most likely referring to God himself, the prince over the Jewish people. And it suppressed his regular offering and even threw down his sanctuary. And the heavenly hosts were delivered up, and it raised itself impiously against the regular offering and threw true religion to the ground, and in all that it did, it succeeded. So Daniel's having a vision about the Jewish people being essentially stomped out and, and they're being given over to this little horn. You might be saying that sounds a lot like the Antichrist. Hold on. I heard a holy one speaking and another one answering him and now they start, the holy ones start talking uh, and then they describe the timing of these things this is towards the end of verse 14. And then he says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will emerge victorious. So how long does this happen for? Well, for a set period of time, and then the time is over, okay? Now, you probably don't have this in your Bible. That's why I'm reading out of this translation. Um, I'm gonna be reading out of the book of 1 Maccabees. And I want you to hear the language that's used to describe uh, the historical events that unfold for the Jewish people. So Maccabees is part of the Deuterocanonical books, or the Apocryphal books, depending on what tradition you grew up in. And here's how Maccabees, chap 1 Maccabees chapter one starts. Alexander of Macedon, that's Alexander the Great, the son of Philip marched from the land of Kittim and he defeated Darius, the king of Persia and Media. He seized his throne already being the king of Greece. And in the course of many campaigns, he captured fortified towns, slaughtered kings and traversed the earth in its remotest bounds. And he plundered innumerable nations. And when at last the world lay quiet under his rule, his pride knew no limits. He built up an extremely powerful army and he ruled over countries, nations and dominions and all paid tribute to him. And the time came, though, when he fell ill. And knowing that he was dying, he summoned his generals, nobles, who have been brought up with him from childhood, and he divided his empire among them while he was still alive. Alexander had reigned for 12 years when he died, and his generals took over the government, each with his own province. And on his death, they were all crowned as kings, and their descendants succeeded them for many years. They brought untold miseries upon the world. A scion of this stock was a wicked man, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome before he succeeded to the throne in the year 137 of the Greek era. At that time, there appeared in Israel a small group of renegade Jews who incited the people, saying, Let us enter into a covenant with the Gentiles around us, they said, because disaster upon disaster has overtaken us since we segregated ourselves from them. And the people thought this was a good argument, and some of them in their enthusiasm went to the king and received authority to introduce non-Jewish laws and customs. They built a sports stadium in the Gentile style in Jerusalem. They removed the marks of circumcision and they repudiated the Holy Covenant. They intermarried with the Gentiles and they abandoned themselves to evil ways. And when he was firmly established in his throne, Antiochus made up his mind to become king of Egypt and so to rule over both kingdoms. He assembled a powerful force of chariots, elephants and cavalry and a great fleet and invaded Egypt. And when the battle was joined, Potlami, the king of Egypt, was seized with panic and took flight, leaving many dead. And the fortified towns were captured and the land was pillaged. So this is a guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, running devastation over the empire. And on his return from the conquest of Egypt in the year 143, Antiochus marched with a strong force against Israel and against Jerusalem. And in his arrogance, he entered the temple and he carried off the golden altar, the lampstand with all of its equipment, the table of the bread of the presence, the sacred cups, the bowls, the golden censers, the, the curtain and the crowns, and he stripped off all the gold plating from the temple's front. 
He seized the silver and the gold and the precious vessels and whatever secret treasures he found, he took them all with him when he left for his own country. And he caused much bloodshed and he gloated over all that he had done. And I'm going to skip now to the, the end of the chapter of 1 Maccabees 1. It says, on the 25th day of the month, they, and this is the, the Antiochus Empire, they offered sacrifice on the pagan altar, which was on top of the altar of the Lord. So they built an altar on top of the altar of the Lord, offering pagan sacrifices. In accordance with the royal decree, they put to death women who had their children circumcised, their babies and their families, and those who had circumcised them, they hanged them by their necks. And yet many in Israel found the strength to resist, taking, uh, determining to stand against and e the eating of any unclean food. And they welcomed death rather than defile themselves and profane the holy covenant. And so they died. And the divide wrath continued to rage against Israel. So this is uh, how the book of Maccabees opens. And this book is uh, historically important for Protestants because it helps us to understand the context of history as it unfolds. What happens between the 400-year gap of the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New? Well, this kind of stuff is happening. The reason I say that is because Daniel is chronologically in the Babylonian Empire, and this book of Maccabees is written post this fourth empire. So it's somewhere over here on the timeline. And it's reflecting on events that have happened or have transpired. And I would argue those are the same events that Daniel has just put forth as going to happen. So Daniel talks about a guy who's going to wage war against the Jewish people. He's going to put an end to religion. He's going to do all these things to profane God and profane the worship of God. And Maccabees opens describing this guy, Antioch Epiphanes, who literally does all those things. He kills Jewish people, he instills Jewish people who are going to lead other Jewish people astray, and he kills people who try to observe anything remotely Jewish, which is nothing like what Babylon did, it's nothing like what Medio persia did, it's nothing even like what Alexander the Great did. So it, it kind of puts into context the historical unfolding of these events. Why is it important that I'm, let's say, delivering all this out? Daniel records this prophecy literally 400 years before the happening of First Maccabees, okay? Uh, Antiochus is around uh, 160 BC. Daniel is written uh, in the sixth century BC. So imagine uh, being before the time the United States is established. You're in, you're in Britain somewhere before the US is even established as a land. And you predict the 9-11 attacks that are going to happen in New York as this great travesty that's gonna befall a nation. A nation that is in now, like not even really in its full force. But here Daniel goes and prophesies about the fate of the Jewish people in the land of Jerusalem, where they're not even at during their Babylonian exile. They haven't even been put back into the Holy Land yet. Daniel's talking about they're going to be trod down while they're in the Holy Land, and they're not even there yet. 400 years before those events take place. It's a really strong case, is my point, for the truthfulness of prophecy and the biblical case for it. Now, all those things might be interesting. Uh, you can do study into this if you're, if you're interested. The, two, the 2300 evenings and mornings is a reference to the time period of this, uh, this expanse or this takeover by Antiochus Epiphanes. He kills the first Jewish high priest, the one who's supposed to be over the temple. Uh, and then by the time the uh, Maccabean revolt takes over and temple worship is restored is exactly within that time span, about six years between the killing of the first high priest and the restoration of temple worship. It's about six years between. Some argue that it should be half that time, uh, and it's because it's morning and evenings, which refers to the sacrifices. Uh, depending on which way you go, either way works chronolog chronologically. Uh, I lean a little bit more towards it, just 2,300 days, about, about six years. 
So the uh, persecution of the Jews at the hands of Antiochus is predicted, um, described here in the text. And now the question, we might step back and we go, okay, great history lesson, very interesting. It's, it's interesting how it all lines up. Of what benefit is that to us who live, you know, so far downstream of this? Well, Daniel is told of this happening before it happens. And he's told of it's happening not as a means of discouragement, but as a means of perseverance, okay? You might have picked up on this when I, when I read it in Maccabees, but remember what the Jewish people say when they're considering aligning themselves with the Gentiles. They say something like, we should align ourselves with the Gentiles because, well, ever since we've been trying to separate ourselves from the Gentiles, things haven't worked out for, haven't worked out for us. We have faced tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Let's try getting along with them. This is their rationale. And from a very human stance, yeah, this is a great, they've been in Babylonian exile, then they were under the Medes and the Persians, then they were under Greece, and now they're under this guy, and they're saying, let's just line up with these guys. They keep reigning and ruling. Well, Daniel's told, before all this unfolds, hey, by the way, there's a sovereign God orchestrating all these things who has not broken his covenant with his people, who still loves his people, who still has their best interest at heart, and he tells them of this terrible thing that's going to happen as a means of, let's say, hold on a little bit longer, God's still in control, Okay. That's important because when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he, he doesn't give them false expectations about living in this world. He says, hey, the world hated me. The world's going to hate you too. Why, why does he have to say that? Well, because what if we believe that, well, Jesus is the savior of the world. The world should accept Jesus. They should accept us. If we're not welcomed with open arms by people, well, we should abandon this Jesus guy because clearly he wasn't who he said he was going to be. This is a, a false conclusion because Jesus says, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face rejection for my name. What's the point of knowing that ahead of time? Well, just so you know, this is all part of the plan. It doesn't mean that I'm not actually in control. What it means is, well, the world is going to reject me, but in the end, I win. That's the point. And this is what Daniel's getting to his exiles in his time. God is still in control, even though for 400 years, things have not looked very good for the Jewish people. He's saying even 400 years from now, why, why would Daniel be written? So that people reading Daniel down the stream can say, you know what? God did say these things are going to get worse before they get better. He told us that this is going to happen, but it's for a finite period of time. And at the end of that time, well, he's going to have a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not meet its end. Well, chronologically, we're kind of in a same, uh, the same kind of boat in, in the church, right? Jesus, it's 2,000 years since his ascension. Uh, we, we still have not seen him, you know, return in final judgment. And uh, we might be tempted to conclude, hey, oh, this thing's not working itself out so well. You know, people are apostatizing from Christianity in record numbers. Let's abandon the faith. False conclusion. Why? Jesus says people are going to be led astray. They're going to be deceived by false teachings. But I'm still in charge. I'm still in control. So very much the same message between Daniel and the teachings of Jesus, just for two very different audiences. With that being said, uh, I'll move into a time of discussion, but let me close us uh, in a word of prayer first. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. Uh, even all of the, the difficult parts that are um, confusing and uh, filled with imagery. Um, Lord, sometimes they're admittedly lost on us in our uh, desire to have plain, application-heavy text. I pray that you would help us to uh, soften our hearts, help us to be sensitive to your word, and help us to profit from your teaching uh, so we might know to hold fast to your truth, that your promises are sure, that your word does stand, uh, so that we might be encouraged uh, to go on tomorrow and live for you uh, and go forth and make disciples of all nations. We pray this in your name. Amen.